So like when I was uh, about uh, nine years old, uh, we're talking about 1957, <clears throat> 58, 9, 10 years old. Uh, the theater in uh, my Brooklyn neighborhood used to play a particular movie uh, every uh, Easter season, be- beginning on Good Friday, and they would run it through the entire Easter week, and uh, it was called The King of Kings, and uh, it was a uh, a movie that was made by Cecil B. DeMille. I'm sure you probably heard of him, Ten Commandments fame. And, and uh, it actually was 30 years old at the time. So 1957, it was made 1927. It's about 30 years old. Now, now, that's not that big of a deal to see a movie that's 30 years old in the theaters today because Star Wars, I looked it up today, was uh, produced in 1978, which is, I guess, about 36 years ago. And everybody's seen Star Wars, and probably people that have been born just, you know, in the last number of years have seen Star Wars. So, so it's not that big of a deal to see a 30-year-old movie, right? But, but it was a silent movie, okay? Uh, and they ran this every, uh, every uh, Easter season back in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And as a nine-year-old, I was really moved and impressed uh, by uh, the story of Jesus' life. It was, it was the last week of of his life, his betrayal, his execution, his resurrection, right? And uh, so, like, fast forward, like, I'm in my 30s now, about 32 probably. Uh, we had just started the church a couple of years uh, before that, and we wanted to have an outreach to our community, and the only way that you could have a movie being played in a church or, or anywhere in public uh, in those days, I mean, it was, it was light years before Blu-rays and DVDs and, and videotape, uh, you know, it was a reel-to-reel uh, projector uh, and tape, you know. And so w- what we did was we hooked up with a company that catered to churches, that rented films and projectors, and, and we had this movie night that we uh, were advertising. And, and one of the things that I, I shared was how, how moved I was when I was about nine years old to see this epic film about the life of Jesus, right? And so... Uh, so we had that night. We had a good turnout that, that night, too. And uh, man, was it disappointing. I mean, a silent film, what was I thinking? Uh, I think the atmosphere went from expectation to major disappointment and disillusionment when Mary Magdalene came on the scene being drawn in a chariot, being pulled by, by, by several zebras. Okay, just to give you that picture, it was... It was a major disappointment, and, and the atmosphere went way down because it was a silent movie. And I mean, what could you expect, right? Did you ever notice the actors in silent movies, how, how in order to communicate without words, they would act over the top? And, and, and the, the guy who played Jesus must have been about uh, 75 years old, I think, at the time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not quite that old, but, but it was just a bust, you know? And uh, I kind of draw the same parallel for those in Jesus' day and in this generation. It wasn't what they were expecting. Jesus wasn't the king that they were looking for. The nation of Israel was looking for a king who was a warrior, who would would bring back the glory days of of Solomon and and, uh, of David of uh, bring the nation back to a place of world prominence and dominance. 
And uh, it just wasn't going to happen the way they expected. So there was major disillusionment and disappointment on their part. So I want you to think about this with me for a few minutes this morning. I want to talk to you about the importance of seeing the gospel in, in the light of the fact that Jesus was an unusual king. In fact, th- there's never been a king like him. There never will be a king like him again. Even though he was what the nation didn't expect or want, he was what the nation needed. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that America is uh, an exceptional country, uh, probably one of the best that the world has ever known. Uh, but right now, our, our government, to me, seems broken, dysfunctional, you know? Uh, with the recent government shutdown over the last two weeks, uh, it just describes how dysfunctional the lawmakers are. I mean, to think of the fact that, that there is a shutdown of our government, right? But there's a government that is coming that will never shut down, that will never end, that will never cease to be. This is what Isaiah said concerning his kingdom of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. What we long for, the desire of all nations, to have someone who will be in a position of leadership who will judge with righteousness and justice. That's the desire, really, of the kind of kingdom and kind of king that we really desire. So I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're talking in this series about the names that are ascribed to Jesus, and there are so many. There's not one name or one title that can sum up the excellence of of who he is. And so one of the names in scriptures that is given to Jesus is that he's called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, one of the very first words that are recorded of Jesus in the gospel of Mark is the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. There's no really rightly understanding of the gospel apart from the message of the kingdom and the king that God has appointed. Many of the parables that Jesus spoke, the stories that Jesus used to explain the the, the nature Uh, of the kingdom of God was to explain it in terms of a king and a kingdom. And uh, this is a very important subject. A king unlike any other earthly king. Now, I'm tempted to jump to the the final revelation of Jesus as the king of kings, where where John says, behold, a, a white horse, and the rider who sat upon the horse had a name inscribed upon his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, whether it was a tattoo or whether it was just a a monogram on his robe, I I can't be sure, but he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But I'm jumping ahead of the story. So let's start at the beginning. The the, the Magi come uh, from the East, men who had probably studied the prophecies of Daniel, Daniel who had foretold that the Prince, the Messiah, When he would come, he would be cut off, but not for himself. And he would make an end of sin, and he would usher in everlasting righteousness. They came, and their first question was, where is he who is born king of the Jews? You know, it's kind of cheesy, but, you know, during Christmas time, 
uh, you'll see the, 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 the Christmas cards and you'll see the, you know, maybe bumper stickers and, and they'll say, wise men still follow Jesus. And I want you to know that if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, it's not because you've been endued with special wisdom from on high to be a follower of Jesus. That, that's not the reason why you're a follower of Jesus. The only reason why you will become a follower of Jesus is because of the grace of God. The unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God, kindness of God that opens up a heart, that makes us look like wise people because we're, we're doing what is wise to follow the one who is our Savior and King. But the reality is, is that it's grace and grace alone that makes us different. Otherwise, we would be just as rebellious and just as, just as disobedient as anyone else. The only thing that makes us different is grace. There's a film a uh, number of years ago. It was called The Last Emperor. And it was a, a story about a, uh, well, the last king of China. And uh, it was right before the, the takeover by the communists. And so it was the last emperor. And it, was, it starts out the story with a, a little boy who is, who is anointed to be the emperor. And he's got a thousand servants at his beck and call. And someone asks him this question. They say, what, what happens to you when or if you do something that's wrong? And the king responds by saying, when I do something wrong, when I misbehave, someone else, one of my subjects, is punished. And to demonstrate that fact, he purposely takes a valuable jar and he purposely breaks it. And then the next scene is, is one of his servants is cruelly beaten as a result of it. Jesus takes that custom and turns it upside down, and he is the king who has come. When his subjects do wrong, he's willing to be punished on their behalf. Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know how, if you realize how otherworldly this is. Because we live in a world where, where the strong eat the weak. But in his kingdom, his kingdom is the strong support the weak. How otherworldly is this that, that kings want to be served, but he has come as the king of kings who has come to serve, not to be ministered to, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The message that, Gabriel gave to Mary concerning the son that she will bear. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And that's really is, is the beginning of the, the unveiling of the kingdom. But then it, when it comes really toward the end of the gospel stories, that's when it really comes into focus. Jesus as the king really begins to take uh, take shape in a, in a way that it hadn't been before that time. The last week before Jesus is betrayed, when he comes into the city of Jerusalem, he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king coming, he is gentle and humble, riding upon a donkey. The uh, accusation that the Jewish leaders had when they brought to Pilate was that he, he claims to be a king other than Caesar, and he is, he's perverted the nation. He, he's, he's taught us that we're not to pay tribute to Caesar. And if you let him go, you are not the friend of Caesar's. The first question that Pilate asked him, 
Jesus was, are you king of the Jews? And when Jesus responded by saying, you have no authority except that which is granted to you from above. And when, and when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my subjects fight to deliver me out of your hand. He started getting a little nervous. His wife came over to him and said, have nothing to do with this innocent man for I have suffered many things concerning him in a dream. Pilate sought to wash his hands of the whole thing, but could not. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you about the abuse that Jesus received at the hands of the Romans when we talked about the price of freedom. I still can't get over the image that I painted of what Scripture paints concerning him that that they spit repeatedly in his face. Here's the, the one who upholds the universe with the word of his power, who, who is granting vile and wicked men access to spit in his face, to pull out his beard, to do this willingly in submission to his father's will. I mean, it, it, just, it just blows me away. And, and, and what did they do? They put a crown of thorns on his head and they, and they knelt down. And what did they say when they knelt down before him? Hail, king of the Jews. So more and more, toward the end of his ministry, this view of him being the king is, is, is so sharp before us. Jesus, king of the Jews. It became the, the very place card of the accusation. When, when, when a criminal was executed, he, he would carry the place card, which was the accusation against him. And, and the accusation was Jesus king of the Jews, in, in three languages, Jesus, king of the Jews. And of course, the Jewish leaders objected and were offended by it, and they tried to persuade Pilate to change it, to, to say, no, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate basically said, it is what it is, what I've written, I'm not changing. I tell you what, there's a, there's a, a, a supposed love story uh, of one of the maybe greatest love stories of all time. Some of the romantics kind of feel this way. Uh, it's uh, got to do with King Edward VIII of England. Maybe you've heard about him and, and Mrs. Simpson, an American uh, aristocrat. Um, it's long been the subject of fascination, this, this love relationship, this, this example of selfless sacrifice, because as, as Edward, the king of England, he, he abdicated his throne for the love of this woman, Mrs. Simpson. Actually, uh, the fact of the matter is that she was, she was married at the time. Uh, she had been divorced once and, and remarried to a gentleman by the name of Simpson, so she was known as, as, as Mrs. Simpson. Unfortunately, King Edward uh, had a propensity toward married women and was actually having an affair with two other women at the time that he met Mrs. Simpson. But he, he gave them up for her. King Edward was faced with the prospect of his entire government resigning because of the scandal, and he chose rather to resign from the government than to give up his mistress and so with these words, in, in December 10th, 1936, he abdicated the throne in favor of his love interest. He says, I, Edward VIII of Great Britain, 
island and the British dominions, beyond the seas, king and emperor of India, do hereby declare my irrevocable determination to renounce my, the throne for myself and my descendants and my desire that effect should be given to this instrument of abdication immediately. Like I said, uh, regardless of the backstory, there's a lot of romantics that think this is just a great example of, of selfless love. But if you really want a, an example of selfless love, it's not King Edward, but it's the king of the universe. It's the king of glory who literally gave up his throne for the sake of those whom he loved, which are people just like us. It's this king who has loved purely and who's loved fervently to the point where he's laid down his life for himself. The only scandal that's associated with him is the scandal of the cross itself, to be crucified for the sake of his love. In Mark 15, verse 32, it says this, Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may believe in him. While Jesus was struggling for every breath while he's being crucified, his tormentors said, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross and we'll believe. But the fact of the matter is it's because he is the King who refused to come down from the cross that we not only believe upon him, but that we love him because he first loved us. No, the gospel's got to be reviewed through the grid of the cross. And when, we, and when we see the gospel through the grid of the cross, we come to a deeper understanding of who this was who came to seek and to save the lost. It's, it's impossible, really, to read the gospels without getting this important message that he's the king. He's the king who's come, who's, who's laid down his life for us. And even in the weakest moments of his, of his life here, when he was still hanging on the cross, the repentant thief said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that moment, Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. He is still in the business of, of saving the lost, of anyone that will call upon his name. There are a couple of occasions uh, in the Gospels where we, where we come across the temptation of Jesus. What, what, was, it, was it really a temptation for Jesus to be the king that the people expected? He knew that they were looking for a warrior king, one who would restore the nation. And, 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 and was that a, a temptation for Jesus? And I think it, I think it really was. In the temptation that he received in the wilderness when Satan came and showed him in a moment's time all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, now you can't do that from any physical location. So, so something supernatural is going on when Satan can show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, all right? And he said, all these will I give you for it's my right to give you. Whether he's lying or not, I don't know. But, but what I know is this, that it was a real temptation, he says, if you will just do this, if you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these. I think what he was suggesting was that the, the dominion that was lost by the first Adam, remember we talked several weeks ago about the last Adam, the, the dominion that was lost by the first Adam's disobedience now could be Satan was saying, I'm going to restore that to you. I'll restore that dominion, that rulership over the world for you 
if you'll just bow down and worship me. Sandstorms wrote this concerning that temptation. He said, to someone who doesn't realize what's at stake, it doesn't look like Jesus is being asked to do anything unreasonable. He isn't being asked to spend his entire life at Satan's feet. It seems like such a bargain. One momentary bow, one bend of the knee, and the whole world would be his. What is one small gesture when the entire planet is in the balance? The prince seems, or excuse me, the price seems so small and the gain so great. And did not the father already promise to grant the nations to Jesus? Wasn't the devil merely offering to give what was his by right anyway? And the offer was to be the ruler of the world, but it was to circumvent the cross, to have the crown without the cross, was something that Jesus refused. Jesus doesn't believe that the end justifies the means, not even for one single moment. Is it, is it worth his energy to worship anyone other than the one true God? On another occasion when Jesus had, had uh, uh, fed 5,000, there was a movement by the people to compel Jesus, to make Jesus king by force, whether he wanted it or not. But Jesus departed, the Bible says, and he went into a solitary place. Why did he go into a solitary place? Well, to pray. And why did he go to pray? Because there was a real temptation for Jesus not to be the kind of king that the world was hungering for, the kind of king that he would one day be that king of kings and Lord of lords who would come in mighty power. But so secure was Jesus in his identity as his beloved of the Father that Jesus was okay to come and to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And it's precisely because of that that every tyrant and every king that's ever been will bow the knee before Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord because of that humility. That would have been absolutely inconsistent with his mission or the revelation of the very heart of God. And so in light of everything that I've said so far about, about the nature of this unique king, I, I want us to look for just a couple of more minutes before we close at, at a scripture that, I don't know, to me just blows me away. You know, like, what, what's, what's the most fascinating part about the gospel to you? Is it the incarnation? Is it the abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers? Is it the resurrection? Is it the cross? Maybe, maybe it just might be like me with the scene that's found here in John chapter 13. So let me read for you. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. I, I, just, I love that last line. He showed them the full extent of his love. Do, do, do you remember when you were kids, maybe your parents did this to you, or maybe you as a parent did this to your kids? Uh, I, I remember uh, doing this to my little granddaughter, Emma, uh, Kath, you probably remember this, right? Uh, if, if your mom and dad, you know, or if your grandparents were, were on, on, tied up on the railroad tracks, anybody ever remember that? 
Which, which, which would, and you could only save one. Which would you save? If you could only save one, you know? And, and I remember Emma saying, I'd stop the train. You know, I'd save you both. You know, and, and we would argue about, but which one do you love us the most? And she would say, I love both of you. You know, can, can never forget that. What a touching moment that was. Or, or do you ever ask your children, how, how much exactly do you, do, you love, do you love me this much? And no, and, and you know what? Kids instinctively knew. They would throw their arms as, as far away as they could or as wide as they could, and they'd say, I love you this much. And isn't, isn't, that, isn't that so ironic that that is exactly the position in which Jesus demonstrated his love for us? But I think that John is saying here, beginning with this scene, he began to show us the extent of his love. You've got to take this scene into consideration. I mean, you just can't look at the cross and say, all right, he, he did that for the sake of his father, but he did something else to show us the extent of his love. Verse 2 says, the evening meal was being served. And the devil already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, which means he would have pulled his robe up over his head and wrapped a towel around his waist. At that point, they must have been like scratching their heads saying, what's he doing? You know, I, I just, I wish that John could have, could have expressed maybe the look of, of perplexity or consternation on their, on their faces. Like, he's not going to do that. No, not you, Jesus. You see, the, the meal had already been undertaken. This is something that should have been done at the very beginning when they first entered the, the house was the washing of feet. And nobody, nobody took the place to wash the feet. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us because when we sit at a table, we don't see our feet. Our feet are under the table. And usually we're wearing socks and shoes, sometimes, anyway. Uh, but, But sticky feet are not an issue for us when we eat, but for them reclining, you know, uh, elbow to elbow and, and, and almost foot right in your face, up close and personal, having stinky feet would be an issue. But they thought, you know what? I ain't going to do it. Let somebody else do it until Jesus started to do it. And they probably thought to themselves, I can't believe that he is doing that. And so it says in verse 5, then after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Uh, It's not clear if Judas was present at that moment or had he left already to betray the Lord. So the possibility is that he also washed the toes and feet of his betrayer. 
The only way that you can wash feet is by being lower than the feet that you're washing. I, I don't know if you realize how amazing this is, that the one who created the universe, who said, let there be light, is now washing stinky feet. There are some things in the Bible that, that leave us scratching our heads saying, wow, that's, you know, it's hard to, hard to, hard to understand that. You know, there, there are some scriptures that leave us with tears. And there are some scriptures that just leave us perplexed with, I can't believe God would do that for me. I can't believe that God would do that for me. See, the amazing thing is that the only monarch who ever deserved that men should fall at his feet is now kneeling at the feet of men who don't deserve it. And he's washing his feet with the water he created. He's, he's, he's washing the feet that he's created. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that this, this Jesus would not be crowned king by men. In fact, the only, the only crown that Jesus was interested in in this life was to be enthroned upon the hearts of followers. That's the, on, that's the only throne that Jesus was interested in. In his book, One Incredible Moment, Max Licato has a, a, little, uh, a little article that I wanted to share with you. It's on page 59. It's titled, Timeless, Boundless Love. And I tell you what, Max, I wish I could write like he does. He's got a, a way with words. Unlimited by time, God sees us all, vagabonds and ragamuffins all. He saw us before we were born, and he loves what he sees. Flooded by emotion, overcome by pride, the star maker turns to us one by one and says, you're my child, I love you dearly. I'm aware that someday you'll turn from me and walk away, but I want you to know I've already provided a way back. And to prove it, he did something extraordinary. He stepped from the throne. He removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered a dark, wet womb. He whom angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant was birthed into the cold night and then slept on cow's straw. Mary didn't know whether to give him milk or to give him praise, so she gave him both, figuring that he was both hungry and holy. Joseph didn't know whether to call him junior or father, but in the end he called him Jesus, since that's what the angel said, and since he didn't have the faintest idea what you call God, who you can cradle in your arms. Don't you think that they, their heads tilted and their minds wondered? What in the world are you doing, God? Or better, God, what are you doing in the world? Can anything make me stoop or stop loving you? Ask God. Can anything make me stop loving you? Watch me. Speak your language. Sleep on your earth, feel your hurts. Behold the maker of sight and sound as he sneezes and coughs and blows his nose. 
You wonder if I can understand how you feel? Look into the dancing eyes of the kid in Nazareth. The God walking to school. That's God walking to school. Ponder the toddler at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last? Find your answer on the splinted cross on a craggy hill. That's me you see up there. Your maker, your God, nail stabbed and bleeding, covered in spit and sin soaked. That's your sin I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That's your resurrection I'm living. That's how much I love you. I can go back to the titles. I can tell you he's, he's, he's called the king of Israel. He's called the king of the Jews. And John says, I saw a vision of one on his thigh was written king of kings and lord of lords. But for those that Jesus bled and died, I think, it, I think it's only right that we would give him the title of king of hearts. For the only throne that Jesus was wanting to be enthroned upon was the hearts of his followers. There's a verse I wanted to close with. It's uh, Revelation chapter one. It's one of my favorite doxologies. And the word doxology just means it's an expression of praise. But it also speaks about us and what he has in store for us. And it says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and forever. So scripture calls him king of kings. That means that the kingdom that he reigns is not the kingdom of France. It's not the kingdom of England. It's not the kingdom of China. He is not the king of tyrants. He's the king of kings who are also king of hearts. This is what God wants us to know this morning, that if this is true, if he is the king of hearts, then our greatest ambition is to know and to serve the king of hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the unfolding of your word once again that we've come to see and understand and just get a little bit more of a handle of who you are, how amazing and how wonderful. No wonder the prophet said his name shall be called Wonderful. Because indeed, you are a wonder to us. In so many ways, you, you cause us to scratch our head and to say, God, would you do that for me? You did that for me? And that blows our mind. And so this morning, Lord God, we want to just make our approach a little bit closer to you today, coming to a place of understanding this incredible love that you have for us. And we just want to bless you in return. We want to serve you and love you and know you more today than we did yesterday. And that's our prayer today.